Hello and welcome to E3, Energy and Efficiency with Emily. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about architecture, building science, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. So welcome back to the podcast. This week we have Kate on and I'm going to let Kate tell you a little bit more about her company Helm and her background and how she got into what she's doing now. So welcome to the show, Kate. Thanks, Emily. Um, So yeah, my um, current company is called Helm Construction Solutions and um, I'm based in Montpelier, Vermont, but we also have an office in Brattleboro and um, folks on our team in Massachusetts and in New Hampshire. Um, And what we basically do is provide business consulting and project management support to high-performance builders all across the country. Um, Some architects as well, but we mostly focus on small construction companies that are doing um, green passive house net zero projects, all kinds of different high-performance, and really try and help them develop their business systems. So we, we, we support them setting up job cost accounting and QuickBooks and estimating software. Um, help with hiring and HR, um, and then kind of more of the project management systems and uh, coaching people through that so they can be more efficient and more effective in what they do. That's really awesome. Um, Are you finding that most of your clients are doing residential or more commercial, larger buildings? I would say most of our clients are in the residential space or small, like commercial. Um, You know, I think our we, we work with sole proprietors and companies that have 30-something employees, but um, for the most part, they tend to be smaller construction companies with under 20 um, employees that, that often don't have a lot of admin office support. Um, and so they're, they're folks who ended up in the trades, didn't necessarily go to business school beforehand, you know, and then all of a sudden they had employees and realized that they they needed to figure some of this stuff out and uh, we're looking for help. So that's kind of our niche is the, the smaller trades. And then, you know, the other fun part about it is that we do have project managers on our, on our team and um, there are six of us all together, but we, um, we also get to act as an owner's representative um, where we work directly for clients and, can kind of help them navigate through the design and construction process. So I come from the nonprofit sector. um, And so I typically like to work with nonprofit clients who are trying to do some kind of new construction or renovate their existing facility. Um, And often, you know, they just don't know what to do and they don't know what's a realistic budget or how do I go find an architect? so if I can catch them early in that process and we can talk about what are your, your goals, your environmental goals, um, that, you know, then I kind of help, na- help them navigate through both kind of capital campaign, but then also, okay, how do we put out an RFP? How do we select an architect? Um, how do we bring a contractor on early to have a really integrated design process? Um, and then you know, help them make decisions because as you can imagine, it's hard enough with one person or a couple and all the decisions they have to make in building a house. But all of a sudden, when you've got a board of directors and a, a whole staff of people, and it's not clear who's in charge of making those decisions, it can be a bit of a challenge. So I get to work yeah. a handful of projects a year that are kind of in that nonprofit, environmental nonprofit space. Yeah, I did a little bit of that. Uh, and your role in that would be 
I mean, so beneficial there. And what you're doing with small contractors uh, working in high performance, I think is also critical. Um, for us, it's always super frustrating where, you know, they're growing and they've grown bigger. And now all of a sudden there's not somebody in the office who's answering the phone because now they're too big, but they don't have an office person. And then, you know, you're waiting on a project schedule. You're not sure what the timeline is. And the um, so that would be huge for, for so many contractors to figure out how to, how to put some of those systems in place and get into that. Do you have people who reach out to you who are interested in getting into high performance, but haven't done it yet or aren't sure how to kind of capitalize on that market and they're trying to transition to that? Yeah, I think um, occasionally. I mean, we, um, we've been lucky enough to be able to be somewhat selective in, in who we work with. And, and we've kind of said, well, we don't want to be having to convince you to do this, to, to do the high performance aspect. But if you're, if you're willing and interested, you know, certainly we can help you along because everyone on our team, you know, we all certified builders for FIAS. And so we, we understand the building science. We're not necessarily the ones doing energy modeling or doing certification for you, but um, yeah, we will, we can help you along the way. And, and out of the dozens of companies that we work with, there are people kind of in all different parts of that spectrum. Um, so they're new to it or they've been doing it for 20 years. And um, Yeah, the question that I keep getting a lot um, for people from either contractors or other architects is that they're interested in doing it. They see that we've been building high performance for a while or we've been working, you know, how do Reggie and John with Emerald Builders, like how have they set up their practices to do that? Because they want to transition into that and they're maybe not sure. And so they're they're following more traditional construction practices, you know, of, of setting something up. And so I could see how your company helping somebody make some of those transition transitions. Maybe it's just, um, you know, simple, like a couple of training things for your staff that's like you say, um, okay, you know, someone on one of the BS and beer shows said, you know, I have one guy on the team who is the caulking specialist. He's in charge of what our blower door number is going to be at the end. And so that person then, you know, goes around, double checks the taping, checks the caulking, or is the person that does some of that stuff. And so maybe maybe some of the way that we get better at building or high performance building is by putting systems in place. Like if you read, um, I don't know, I'm a big reader. Like if you've ever re read the E-Myth, mm -hmm. they talk about why McDonald's is successful. And not that we want to say McDonald's is great. It's not, but you get the same thing every time because they've put a system in place. And maybe that's some of how high performance building works is when people ask me, I just say, well, we sort of said, we stop doing all the other things, which maybe that's a privileged position in the Northeast that we have. I know you guys in Vermont, I'm envious of you in Vermont, your, your, uh, energy, uh, what, I don't even know what you guys call it, uh, but your efficiency Vermont or energy. Yeah. Your efficiency Vermont program, you know, they work really hard to help you connect with energy professionals that help you target those goals. And you seem to be, much more willing to use natural materials and stuff, which I, we see some of that in Maine, um, but we also see, and I'm sure you have it in Vermont, and, and I won't say that you don't, but we see a lot of the, we've been doing it this way for 25 years, and that's just how we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so I'm always envious of that. And I would say that Efficiency Maine is so far behind Efficiency Vermont in, in what they're helping people to achieve. And so um, I, I love that you're doing that. So I, I probably come from a privileged position of being able to say that this is what we do because we attract people who are coming from Massachusetts or Connecticut or something else where maybe they've heard about it before and they're like, oh, okay, that's what we're doing. But I also feel like that's how um, I'm excited that we're going to have some code stuff coming up on BSM Beer where we can talk about how the 2021 code that's getting adopted is what pretty close to Passive House in its language. So code is not the enemy. It's our implementation of code and training and, and how we've done all of that. But um, before I get off track, we talked a little bit beforehand. Um, so to go back to what we were talking about um, is that you mentioned that you have a toolkit for, for diversity. So um, as you're helping people to put together their businesses, I want to talk a little bit more about this issue that's come up. And maybe you can tell me a little bit more about your background. People who have been listening to the podcast for a while have already heard me talk about this, but you know, my dad was a farmer, my grandfather was a contractor. When I was in middle school and high school, we did Habitat for Humanity type things. In the summertime, I went to a farming high school. We had farming classes where they built tractors and we had wood shop and we had drafting. So for me, that continued education, even as a female in, those fields was really natural and I got into architecture and that was what I wanted to do. So what's, what's your backstory sure. if you're willing to share with us about how you got into that and then how you built this toolkit for diversity for like, we're talking, you know, woman to other woman, but you know, there's, there's a lot of diversity right now. And like, how do we get other people interested in, in this? So. Great. Well, yeah, there's a lot there. So, um, yeah. so I came into this, um, I grew up in rural New Hampshire, and my father was a contractor, um, you know, master carpenter. And um, my first job in high school was in the summers was working for the same custom builder that he worked for his whole career um, in Norwich, Vermont. And so um, it's scary how <laughs> some of these things like, um, I don't know, uh, inform what I'm doing. To, I mean, what I was doing on my first job when I was 16 years old was like sitting in this little construction office, you know, helping them type up all their invoices and do billing. And, um, and here I am, now I'm helping contractors all over the country <laughs> how to do their invoicing in QuickBooks. Um, so it's scary that that's still um, such a big part of what I do. But, um, but I, I worked in construction at, um, more you know not not with a hammer in my hand but more in kind of the high school gopher and office support role um, and then i worked for uh, landscapers all through college as well so i was on job sites um, and kind of working in people's homes but um, never really the one um, responsible for construction um, and went off to college got my um, fancy liberal arts degree, um, went and moved to Boston to work in a nonprofit. Um, and after, um, well, just a couple, a year or so into that, 9-11 um, uh, happened and the nonprofit I worked for went under. And so I was like, hmm, what should I do now? Maybe I, I want to get out of the city and I'm going to, maybe I can um, move to Vermont and go to grad school. 
that I had like the summer off between leaving this job in Boston and going to grad school at UVM. So I decided I would try and find an internship and uh, ended up at the Yes Tomorrow Design Build School, which is in Waitsfield, Vermont. Um, did a summer internship there and basically ended up staying for 13 years after that. <laughs> um, so, um, so yeah, I kind of just went from, uh, found at Yes Tomorrow this, this place that brought together my interest in the environment and my interest in construction um, and, and education, really, because the, if you're not familiar with Yes Tomorrow, it's really, it's a school for adults um, where you can learn hands-on building skills as well as design. So it's trying to empower folks to be able to design their own home um, or permaculture landscape or learn how to build a timber frame or you know all hundreds of different courses so we would have people come from all around the country to learn how to do things with their hands um, and it was a ton of fun it was a huge learning experience to meet you know architects and builders and um, tradespeople, woodworkers from all around the country um, who were both teaching and also taking classes um, and that's part of what, what kept me there for 13 years. Um, but in 2015, I um, was ready to move on to something else and, and had gotten interested in this idea of how do we support the building industry um, and, and kind of the, the business systems behind it. And so ended up starting this consulting firm uh, with Mel Baser, who's my business partner. Um, and we started Home Construction Solutions uh, just about five years ago. Yeah, that's really awesome. And how, I, put how I got here. <laughs> yeah, how you how you got to where you are now. And I said um, at one of the BS and Beer shows, I was like, we need BS and Beer summer camp. And I said, we should do this all over the country. And yes, tomorrow might be a really great yeah. place to, you know, they have the facility set up to try out summer camp. I think it was during um, when we were talking about natural plant-based materials, because even those of us who have been in the industry for a while haven't all worked with, you know, how does, and, and you get preconceived notions, you know, it was in my head that you can't do straw bale construction in the Northeast and someone, you know, very simply set me wrong. Like if you've done any kind of water management, you can build the straw bales. And I'm like, don't we all do water management? Um, okay, right. So you know, moving on, there's, you know, there's no barrier to, to doing this if you know how to use it. And, um, at Penn State, they did a straw bale construction class, and then they went out west and they built a straw bale uh, building on a reservation, uh, and they built kind of community buildings or a house or something, and they learned how to use those techniques. And I thought, well, that would be cool for BS and beer summer camp. And then I thought, you know, it's not always easy for for people to get to different parts of the country. And then um, I recorded a podcast with. Uh, Rachel Preston Prince, which is going to be up this week. And um, she talked about what is kind of native out in New Mexico. And I thought, oh, you know, they got all of these earthship, uh, you know, <laughs> there's so many cool things all over the country, you know, what works, what doesn't work. Um, hempcrete, is that going to become a thing? Do we all learn how to use it to... I don't know. And there's so much possibility. And so yes, tomorrow seems like a great place to, if you're going to try BS and beer summer camp <laughs> once, you know, facilities sort of already set up, already doing training, you know, right. like that. Well, and or, if you've ever been crew. to the campus in Waitsfield, it is, um, 
full of experiments from, you know, this is the 40th year of Yes Tomorrow, and there are um, 30 years of experiments on that site of um, 1990s straw bale, 2000 straw bale, um, things that worked well, things that didn't work so well. You can see all kinds of different timber frame structures, stone structures, hempcrete, I mean, you name it they've got something like that somewhere there. So it's kind of interesting. I mean, and then that's part of the, the idea is um, show all these different building styles um, that were all built by students. And, kind of. and like you said, hands-on experience. And I think that's the, that's the thing that's the hardest. And it's always, you know, when you transition from standard construction to your first high performance house, like it always takes longer until you figure out you know, how to do the tapes or how to do whatever it is that's different, you know, a, a fully adhered WRB or, you know, double stud wall, all kinds of things. And so that was the one thing I liked about passive house training. Um, you can take that passive house designer course, which is what I took, but then there was also a contractor course that you could take where you build a wall system and you disassemble the previous classes wall system. And so it's very hands-on like here's how you you do that and I think that hands-on experience is is just critical so so what they're doing there is is pretty awesome um and the fact that you were part of that for 13 years is pretty cool so yeah. I mean and it's interesting because it's it's programs for professionals you know builders who want to learn that high performance you know they host a whole bunch of FIAS courses and um, all kinds of specialized courses, but then it's also for the total novice homeowner, you know, and I think that's often, um, it's beneficial to our industry overall, if our customers like understand something about what we're talking about. Uh, so we have to send them all to the school first. Like it's but, sort of this joke that I give them homework and I'm like, you're going to have to read this and you're going to have to look this up and you know, whatever. But, but now homework is going to get hands-on. You have to go to, you have to go to summer camp. Right. And I think you can it makes them appreciate the architects too, because you know, people would come and take a two week home design course and want to design their house with never having touched, you know, uh, a, I mean, and we teach hand drafting. So, you know, never having touched a pencil before they would design their whole house in two weeks. And then at the end we'd be like, okay, you could possibly go and try and find a build, you know, hand, hand a builder, you know, your little hand drafted plans, but you probably are going to need an architect. And then like their appreciation for architects is so, so much more <laughs> after they've realized like, oh, this is more complicated than I thought. <laughs> That's my favorite thing. I, I love when clients come and they're like, I've been playing around and sort of with the design and the thing I can't figure out is the roof and the stairs. And I'm like, that's because those are the two hardest things to figure out in architecture right. is how do the stairs actually work? How does the roof come together? And how does this translate from a two-dimensional plan to a 3D actually buildable, constructable right. uh, or house. Or I just threw a line for the wall, but it turns out that the, within that line, it's that wall has really 14 inches thick and there's all these different layers. <laughs> yeah. So how did Yestromorrow transition into some of the training? Like when you're setting up systems and people for what you're doing now with Helm, you know, do you often find that you recommend training courses as part of what they should do um, well, or continued question. education? I mean, we're often the ones providing the training. So whether it's one-on-one -on -one training on a particular software or something, or often it's, um, it's kind of this whole cycle where 
we're working with a, a business, a small business owner, we realized here's the gap, you know, you don't have anyone really doing project management or you're the owner and you're trying to do everything. You're, you're doing all the bookkeeping and the project management and um, hiring, you know, it's just too much. And then, so we're kind of helping them identify their needs. And then maybe we help them write the job description for a new office manager or project manager. And then we help them with the hiring. And then we can say, okay, well, we will train them since you don't even have a system, we will train them in our system and, and kind of try to bring it full circle and um, be part of it. That might be critical. I think that the fact that you then train them in the system, because I think, um, or at least what I've heard is a lot of people don't know how to transition out of doing it themselves. They're like, what's well, going to take me just as long to tell this person how to do it as it would take me to actually do it. And it's like, maybe the first time, but if you build a system, um, and that's, I think what the e-myth is, is really built around is the most successful companies have systems in place. And then when that person leaves and you have to hire a new person for whatever reasons, I mean, people leave for various reasons, you know, they have kids, they move away, their spouse wants to go somewhere else. They, um, they want to take a job in a totally different industry, you know, but you have a system in place that the next person that comes in isn't reinventing the wheel of everything that you have to do and that's um they started writing e-myth books for uh occupation specific and that's one of the ones um that's really critical in the architecture industry because apparently as creatives we're not that great at all the whole business part of it and we're really good at recreating the wheel so um there's an architect uh mark lepage who started a group of entrepreneur architects where we finally started talking about like the business of architecture as opposed to being architects and it's fascinating how we've all just i, I didn't i don't know if that's a creative business issue or if that's just a normal people who aren't taught business going into business and that architecture just happens to be, I think it's something like 50 to 75% of architects are sole practitioners or something. Like it's a really high percentage of people who own their own firms versus work for a larger company. And so, um, I mean, in general, most small business owners did not go to business school or ever take a business class. So I think that's yeah. not that unusual. Um, and it's hard for them to understand the importance of hiring somebody like you to help them set up the systems that then is going to make them money right. in the end. You know, it always seems to be that transition of like, oh, I know I need to do this, but I'm going to figure it out on my own to save money. And then you never figure it out. And then you just sort of tread water for 10 years until you either give up or you actually figure something out. And so I love that you're setting up this position, realizing there's a need for it in the construction industry and what you're doing and helping people set up those systems. Yeah, I that's what I love about it that. too is, you know, it's this idea of like not having to reinvent the wheel and how do we share the best practices? So you know, yeah. both in Helm, you know, we have this advantage of working with dozens of different companies and we can say, oh, we know, you know, we have five companies using co-construct and these ones are using builder trend and these ones use construction suite and these people use T-sheets and like everyone's trying different, um, I mean, those are software options, but, you know, other systems and we can kind of say, okay, this is really working. Like we can see how this has really been successful and um, kind of share it back out to other clients. I mean, we're not, 
it, everything's confidential, but when we see something that works, um, then we want to be able to replicate that and not have to go through the painful uh, invention process all over again. And I think that you're in a unique position of working with multiple clients is that you can really dial down in. And a lot of those softwares, and like we've looked at different softwares to use in our own business, but some of those softwares do so many things that you'd never use. And so you're able to work with a bunch of people to see what, what they're actually doing and say like, okay, we've evaluated all of these softwares and like maybe this one is a little bit more than that one, but it has this one feature that's gonna be huge for you. Or like this one that's really expensive, which sounds like it has all these bells and whistles, you're never gonna use 50% of them. So why pay the 50% more? Which is the hard part as the business owner, if you're really working on your business and in your business, you don't have time to evaluate like the paragraph sentence that it says about each one of these things. It's, it's hard to determine. And the two week trial period or something is never really yeah. enough time to dig into how does this, like, it takes you two weeks to figure out how to do half the things in the program, right. you know, so having somebody that can train you and say, Hey, we've used this. This is why we right. think this is the right solution for your business. And by the way, here's how you do that. Like I switched CAD programs and I happened to switch to one that um, another architect that I work with frequently uses. And so we set up a couple of one-on-ones, like here's how I set up this template. Here's what I do. Like here's some, here are the tools that you, here's how you find the tools. <laughs> and like, here are the tools that I use all the time. And that was so much better than, you know, I had a 30 day trial of the program that I, I maybe never would have used or figured out how to do anything in those 30 days, because I was also trying to work at the same time and do other things. And so having someone like you that says, okay, here's what you need to use and here's how you use it, or here's this great new program we think might be good. We will help you figure out how to use it is, you know, is, is really critical. And so then along those lines is, you know, you've developed systems and stuff, not just like programs that they use, but, you know, systematically, I mean, I assume that you help them set up like protocol of, you know, when a call comes in, here's like where it starts. Right. Yeah. Sales <laughs> process and sales training. Um, and, you know, going back to the also kind of bringing people on, I mean, part of what we want to do is help folks look at the team that they have now and try to identify, are there people already in your team that have potential for growth? Um, you know, I think often folks go into the construction industry and it's not, unlike larger kind of corporate jobs, there's not always like a clear ladder that you're expected to climb or you do X and you get a promotion to Y. Um, and so in construction, I think it is important, like we spend a lot of time looking at um, employee development and what is what does this person need to know to be able to succeed and, and do better in their job and maybe this person happens to be they're, they're not that experienced but they they're very organized they're great with technology they're great with customers like they could be your next project manager even if they're only 25 years old because you know they kind of have the personality and and skills for it even if they haven't been in the field for 20 years so it's it's been interesting to kind of help um, the companies that we work with identify what they need. Do, can they do it from in-house or do they have to go out and try and find someone um, with the, the, that they can bring in from the outside? 
Yeah. Um, someone said to me recently that it's like 80% psychology and 20% skill, and you can teach the people the skill, but you can't teach the people to have the right personality for the job that they're doing, which was kind of like, oh yeah, that, duh. You know, and you might go into a company and find that the right person in the company is doing the wrong thing. You know, like they might be better suited for some other skill and position. And um, Christine Williamson from uh, Building Science Fight Club said when she was on the podcast that, you know, some people don't get into the construction industry because they don't think that the skill set that they have could be used in a trade industry. And that's really not the case. So how do you help people hire for, for both, you know, getting people into the construction industry who, who maybe didn't have like, you know, didn't think that like good project management skills doesn't necessarily mean that you swing a hammer. I mean, you might be great with a spreadsheet or um, there are so many different levels of how you could get into a trade that isn't necessarily what we think or understand of that. So like, how do you help people with hiring, finding the right people? And, you know, again, coming back to the whole diversity thing is, um, you know, how do we get into schools maybe at younger ages to get people or uh, somebody said to me, and I don't remember where, whether it was in the podcast or, or Instagram or, um, had said that, you know, like maybe you need to go into math class, like not into the the tech programs where somebody's joined because they want to swing a hammer or they like to to build things or they like to work with their hands, but to get into like science classes or math classes or unrelated in theory, unrelated to trade programs to to garner people's interest in there are so many things that you could do. So well, you know, on that topic, we did um, do some work to create what we're called, we, we call a toolkit for construction business owners around diversity and inclusion in their small businesses. Um, you know, and really understand, realizing that in the, in a small business with a handful of people, like you don't have an HR department, you're not probably bringing in trainers to do all day trainings with your team. Um, but really, so it goes to hiring, it goes to how do you, present like a welcoming, you know, put out the welcome mat for people from all different kinds of backgrounds. And that by itself can go a long way. I mean, even in a job ad, just kind of saying, you know, women, LGBTQ, uh, people of color, welcome to apply. Um, it's, you know, a lot of people will sometimes just put like equal opportunity employer. Like, what does that really mean? <laughs> I, I know technically what it means, but is that going to convince someone to apply? But um, so it's both in the hiring. It's about where do you put, where do you place those job ads? Are can you be more creative about um, getting the word out? Because nine times out of ten, my experience is that when I say, "Oh, how did you find this new carpenter on your crew?" They say, "Oh, well, I knew a guy," or you know, someone on my crew knew a guy. It's usually a guy, right? Um, or I kind of put the word out at the lumber yard and they told me that Joe was looking for a new job. Um, and so the more that it's kind of that old boy network, the more likely you are to recruit people who are similar in demographic, right? Um, so we have to be able to like, yeah. bust out of that, which means actually posting jobs. You know, a lot of construction companies, they're like, I've never posted a job. I just kind of 
hire whoever walks in the door or, um, you know, who's kind of friend with friend. <laughs> um, we've never had to, to post a job. And I'm like, well, if you did post, you might get a more diverse group of candidates to choose from, right? Um, so we, we, I work a lot with um, helping craft those job ads and the job descriptions and, and thinking about the language that we use in those and then also think about where to put them. Here in Vermont, we have a great organization called Vermont Works for Women. Um, they train women in lots of non-traditional trades, including construction um, and renewable energy. And so most of their graduates are kind of apprentice level carpenters, but it's a great place. They, you know, they have a job board. Uh, yes Tomorrow has a job board. Like there's different schools out there that have job boards that are um, maybe a little different than uh, yeah, your local trade school. Um, so yeah, kind of figure out where, where do you put it, but then once you are able to hire someone who maybe is, um, uh, yeah, not a cisgendered uh, straight man, uh, <laughs> then it's also about how do, you, how do you make sure that you have a welcoming culture um, within the other folks that are already on your team um, that, that doesn't alienate these, these folks that you've worked so hard to recruit. And that comes back to, you know, as a business owner, how do you make sure that when someone says something offensive that you like shut it down right away? You know, whether it's sexual harassment or whether it's um, just off color jokes, it happens all the time. And that, you know, if you ask women who had gone into the trades, but then didn't stick with it, why they, why they didn't, that is often the main reason was that it was just like, the, the culture and the um, overt and um, kind of behind the scenes harassment um, is a big part of what forces women to leave. So, um, so really, yeah, thinking about like what are company policies that you need to have in place? How do you respond just on a peer to peer level to say, hey, that's not cool. Um, you know, and, and part of the toolkit has a bunch of those prompts of just like, here are potential responses when you hear, you know, a homophobic joke or um, someone calling a woman on your crew, like a girl, um, you know, there are all these, these kind of microaggressions or whatever, or, or very explicit aggressions. Um, and how do we all together kind of work to um, make sure that it's super clear that it's not acceptable. It's not acceptable from people from your employees. It's not acceptable from your subcontractors and trade partners, um, and that you're going to follow up. You know, and and there are repercussions from that kind of behavior. So there's a lot of other things in the toolkit, but it, it's trying to trying to make it accessible and um, some kind of hands-on things that, that people can do in a small business. Yeah, and I think um, what you said at the beginning of that, which is, you know, knowing where to post a, a job opportunity, um, they always say in marketing books, like know your ducks and then hang out where your ducks hang out. So if you're trying to attract, you know, women, the Vermont Coalition for Women is a great place to to go. Or um, when I recorded with Trayvon, he said, you know, an architect came to his school and he was sold and he didn't know that that was even a field that he could go into. And then, you know, when this, this person came to the school and said like, hey, this is this cool thing that I do and any of you can do it. They were like, oh, this is great. Um, 
And then we're seeing a lot, um, at least I am, there's a Penn State architecture school uh, forum. So I went to Penn State for architecture school and you know, there's been a forum on there where people are now sharing their stories about um, architecture school. And, and one of the things um, that wasn't, I guess maybe translated, uh, which has come up uh, recently um, is that architecture school isn't cheap, not just the fact that you have to go to architecture school, but then you do a lot with books and model building and other things. And are there scholarships available to help people who don't come from the same economic backgrounds to to meet the demands of what a studio requirement would be? Or, you know, is there a way for us to transition studio requirements to include that as part of tuition, things that you could finance? Or, you know, I, I'm, I really love the idea of, you know, the hands-on learning. We, we built models, which, which was really good. I think 3D visualization is good, um, but with computer modeling, we can do a lot with computer generated modeling, which is interesting. And that maybe what we need to do, I think one of the best things that we did um, in architecture school in our material science class, we somebody donated a bunch of two by fours and bolts and we were given a program and we had to bolt together something. Um, one group made a pirate ship. So we all used the same two by fours and the same bolts and we just, each successive group just undid it, you know? So we all used the same materials. It was all hands-on. It was a group project. We had to learn how to physically construct something that you could build and we had to work as a team to make it happen. And that I think was was one of the better hands-on physical experiences. And it didn't require us to buy anything else because you couldn't paint it or do anything else with it. You just had, you had a certain number of Lincoln logs and you had to build something out of them. Only they weren't, you know, this big, they were full scale. And, and so how do we transition architecture or even construction projects into, because one of the other projects that we did was like a campus build and we built benches or, you know, that we had a, a client who commissioned a piece, you know, and they, so how do those of us who are now architects or builders potentially get involved in those programs to give people hands-on experience that maybe isn't the same as having to, you know, I didn't even really think about it. I, I had a job. My dad said, you can have the first semester to adjust to college life. And then I expect you to have a job the rest of the time. So I had a job the whole time through architecture school. And that was how, how I afforded to, to do some of those things. But, you know, not everybody has that ability or opportunity or economic backing to to be in that position and so um that was something that i guess i hadn't thought of and so it was really interesting to see on these boards now where people are talking about you know their experience um one of our classmates was actually a um an exchange student from another country and he talked about his experience and then being in the united states and learning in a different language and the barrier the barriers to that and coming across, you know, somebody who wasn't proactive to him becoming an architect and, you know, that, so it's really interesting um, to me how, how the built environment can get involved in the school environment and the training and, you know, whether it's the professional training at Yestermara, the homeowner training, or, 
Habitat for Humanity. I mean, I did that kind of stuff in high school, but when I was in college, I never thought about doing that for a summer. And when people ask me, like, you know, what, what's your best recommendation? And I always say, go work for a contractor for the summer, you know, learn how to build the things you might design as a designer that makes you a better designer. Uh, You're not going to learn everything, but it maybe teaches you how to critically think a little bit different. I don't know. So. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I definitely hear you on that. Like there are many reasons why going to architecture school is, um, challenging and caught, you know, the cost is one of them. I mean, on the flip side of that kind of economic argument is going into schools and talking about that you can make a really good living in the trades. Um, maybe not as an architect, <laughs> but if you're a plumber, no. electrician. <laughs> Everyone thinks that architects make all this money, which no. is like this crazy thing. We're actually a slave to our passion, right. most of us, uh, which is really interesting. Um, but, I, and I, I joke about this, but I said, you know, to my dad, I was like, why didn't you encourage me to go become an electrician or a plumber? Like, I look at what I pay my plumber who, who did, um, you know, a, a trade, like maybe a two-year trade school has a licensed trade, has, you know, has kind of a lot of the same clout and criteria, you know, with, did apprenticeship for a certain amount of time, which is the same at architecture as they do. And like right now, plumbers and electricians are hard to come by in Maine. So it could be a great trade Almost to go into everywhere. and start your own yeah. business. I mean, I don't, I, um, you know, I went to a prep school, so they, you know, there was no conversation about trades. It was all, you know, college prep, but, um, but no one, nowhere in my educational experience from kindergarten through, through college, did anyone ever talk about, um, kind of the, the careers that you could choose from and their economic, um, value you know like what's the average salary for a fighter firefighter versus a teacher versus a plumber um, or a lawyer you know like these kids are making choices about career no clue as to a how much debt you have to go in to if you're going to medical school or vet school or architecture school um but also like what's the what's the payback too the end of the day and not I'm not trying to say that that should be the only driver of what influences you know kids decisions about what they want to study in school but you'd think that it would at least be part of the conversation um, and maybe there are other schools that have more have more of a career focused um, Maybe. I don't know. I feel like when you're in high school, the guidance counselor just wants to know which colleges you applied to. It's very, um, it's very proactive for people to, to push for college. Um, it seems every successive generation wants better for their kids than what they had. So, you know, pushing to go to college. But right now we're looking at the massive amounts of debt that kids are having coming out of college. And I said this jokingly to someone recently, I'm like, at 18, do you really want to, do you really know what you want to do with the rest of your life? Like when I decided to go to architecture school at 18 and then had five years into architecture school, I felt like that was the direction I had to go. And then I had to do three more years of internship afterwards. So at that point I was in my mid twenties and kind of going, okay, well, I've devoted the last 10 years of my life to this. This is, this is what I'm doing. And I decided that at 18. And so I I feel like there's maybe not as much. And 
we've jokingly made it sound like, oh, well, if you don't succeed in college, you can always go into a trade, which is the wrong way. Because if we look back at some of the things that we love the most, you know, the 1800s farmhouse that had all the beautiful craftsmanship and woodworking, craftsmanship was was big then. They were proud of what they did. They They raised the bar of what they were doing. And so I think as an industry, we've talked about this as far as climate change and building science and pulling the bar up. But with COVID-19, I think we've realized some of the things that are critical and essential and building is one of those. And I think that if we push the bar up in building, you know, that there's a possibility that people could make better wages in building. There are plenty of jobs in building that people do make great wages at. And then it became essential and we want people to realize that a lot of the people who have gone into the trades didn't go into the trade because they couldn't do something else. They went into the trade because they were really passionate about that. And so sort of forgotten. I feel like there are people who go to college because that's what we're told to do, who might really thrive or succeed in doing, you know, I... I think part of the reason, and and like I said earlier, it's pretty common for an architect to work for themselves, but I think part of the reason why I started my own business is because I don't want to sit in front of my computer and draft all day. I want to be out on the job sites. I want to be involved in, you know, more of that stuff. And that's where I wanted to go with what I was doing because I didn't want to sit at a desk all day. And so there are a lot of people who, who then go to college, have a massive amount of debt, have to make a certain amount of money coming out of school just to pay off debt, have college loan debt, 10, 15, 20 years after graduating. I mean, shoot, you look at the people, architecture school is expensive, but it's nothing compared to med school or, um, I think even uh, to to become a law student is fairly uh, extensive amount of capital there. Is it anything where you have to do more than four years? It's just a lot more expensive. And then what happens if you get out? So here's the thing about architecture school. Architecture school and the practice of architecture are two totally different things. They aren't, they're not even in the same realm of what you do. So what happens when you get out of architecture school and you realize, you don't like architecture and you don't want to be a practicing architect or you could graduate after four years with a bachelor's of science in architecture, which is basically a BS degree and that's and BS not in the building science sense Uh, (laughs) because at that point you're not an architect. You can't become an architect because it's not a professional degree. You could go into some kind of design field. Some people go into graphic design and other stuff, but it's like, you have a degree in kind of nothing. I don't know. Like, what do you do? What do you do with that? Go be a builder. You'll be a builder. (laughs) We need them. Everybody, everybody do it. That's part of the hook when you're, I don't know, whether it's talking to middle school class or um, anybody who's looking for something different. I mean, that you could be 40 years old and wanting to transition your career, but there is something so satisfying about seeing the product of your labor at the end of the day um, that you think there there are a lot of careers out there people sitting in call centers or whatever they're doing you know where there is very little um, they can really look back on um, as kind of what they have produced and so that's what I love about you know the whole design and construction industry is we get to we get to see what we made at the end of the day.
there's nothing more exciting as an architect than seeing your first house actually get built. I mean, that's the, that's the coolest thing. And I would say that, um, because we don't make any money as architects, um, most of us work for a really long time because it is our passion project. So, I mean, you look at some of the famous architects that were still working in their 80s and their 90s. Um, so if you want to transition and go to, uh, you have a first degree maybe and get a master's in architecture in your 40s and spend two years doing that and then working for an architecture firm, that's fine because you've got another 40 years to work. So no worries. <laughs> plenty of time left to, to figure it out and, and, and do it. And so, you know, I chose the path of going to architecture school at 18. I feel like a lot of people in my class were either just out of high school or, you know, like a year out, there were a couple of people who were, were a couple years out. Um, I know Bob Swinburne in Vermont, um, worked for, uh, worked for a few years, went to art school, worked for a few years and then went to architecture school. Um, people who have gone to architecture school and gotten a master's degree afterward have said, you know, like go out, work for a couple of years, then go back and get a master's degree. You have a different perspective, I think, after being in the workforce. Um, and I also suggested on another recent podcast too, um, if you do go to architecture school, try different types of firms to work in because architecture is so vastly different. Like I asked you about the high performance in working with residential uh, contractors. Um, residential and commercial architecture is so different. And then the types of commercial architecture, whether it's skyscrapers or healthcare or education or government work, they're all so totally different. And there are big firms and small firms and residential architecture isn't necessarily easier. Um, it's maybe easier as far as structural. The structural is a lot more straightforward, but it is the psychology is a lot different say, in, yeah, in residential architecture. In, uh, <laughs> there you go. Have you developed a client management system? <laughs> I would, I could say that we had it all figured out, but um, no, I mean, that's a lot of when we talk about, we do consulting and coaching. I mean, a lot of the calls that we get on a day-to-day -day basis are you know, are these business owners, contractors who are, who, who need someone to talk it through with. And they're like, I have this issue. The client is being crazy and they're doing this and they're doing that. And like, how do I respond in a professional way? And we just help them kind of game it out. Um, because yeah, often if you're a sole proprietor contractor, you don't really have people to talk to. Um, and maybe that's a good segue into talking about our peer network, but, um, you know, uh, their, their, their wife or their partner might, might have to hear about it like over the dinner table. Um, but you know, a lot of what we can do is, is yeah, help them come up with a strategy, um, that's based on having dealt with so many clients over so many years. Um, but, um, yeah, part of the, the other thing that kind of actually inspired me to, to, to start Helm was um, being part of this builders network group um, that is organized through NESI, the Northeast Sustainable Energy Association. Um, and we now have about 60 companies that are in our network and um, divided into six small groups. But part of that is it's again, it's not having to invent the wheel. It's, it's getting to know people who are in, in other regions, but who have similar business types and being able to, to talk shop and 
compare notes and say, I have this employee issue, like what do I do? Or this client issue or, um, you know, anyone have a template for a production manager job description? And then like you post it to the listserv and 10 people respond with, here's, here's an example one. Um, so there's been a lot of, of sharing through that. And I think that's, um, can be really valuable um, to, because uh, as a small business owner, you can, you can just be in your own little bubble. Um, so it's helpful to have people you can talk to who aren't necessarily your direct competition. You can talk about financials, you know, how do you figure out your pricing? Um, we, it, within this bottom lines business network, we, yeah, it's kind of, um, it, we keep the, all that information confidential um, within our groups, but, but really encourage people to share pretty openly um, and give feedback to each other. Yeah, I think that having a peer network, um, we sort of forget when we're in business that we're not an island, that there are other people out there. Um, and you said about the confidentiality uh, and that they're not necessarily your direct competitors, but to be honest, the way the construction industry is right now, we shouldn't consider anybody our competitor. We should consider everybody our peers because there's more work than there are people to do it. And so, um, you know, helping each other out. I know uh, up here, I've done that in the past too, is someone will come to me and it sounds like a really great project, but I just don't have the time to take it on. And I'm like, Hey, here are these two or three other architects that I know who could help you, or I will partner with one of them. Like they, Oh no, we really want to work with you. And I'm like, okay, but here's the deal. I'm going to partner with this other person to make sure that we can still meet your timeline. And so we've ended up as sole practitioners creating a bigger company without necessarily all being part of the same group. And so that peer networking, the Nessie bottom lines is one, it's, you know, a bunch of people who kind of have the same, you know, maybe have the same goals, which is really good. You know, you're, you're all kind of thinking about the sustainable energy portion of it. You know, you're not just contractors out there doing work, but you're, you're doing that. But, um, part of the other thing that, that you said and about being able to go to someone else is that we're often emotionally invested in either our employees or our clients. And so sometimes it's really hard to take a step back and actually hear like, how should I deal with this where I'm not emotionally invested in the outcome of what might happen here? You know, it's the same with taking taking your business and having an admin assistant that does the deals with billing and invoicing. So it's not like you, the person who's there every day dealing with the monetary aspect, especially in residential is that the people that you're working for, especially are emotionally tied to the mo the money of whatever is going on there. So having just like one little degree of separation, they still work for your company. They still do all of that, but they get an invoice from Angela, not from Emily, you know, yeah. It, there's just or, or they get this reminder like hey you haven't paid your invoice and it's not coming from you the business owner and then they know they can always come to you and ask you questions but that there's some you know there's some level of I always thought that that was one thing that's so hard in business and especially in residential architecture and residential construction is that you're you're really emotionally invested in your clients. I mean, I know which side of the bed you sleep on and where you throw your socks. And like, I mean, I know things about you that your best friends don't know about you. Right. So, so then when you, when you have an issue, which goes back to the, the manual that you talked about for diversity and inclusion, but also, you know, 
some of the people that I love working with the most, their response to a problem that happens on a job site, because inevitably you're going to have something that didn't, didn't quite get translated correctly is this is great. It's no one's fault. Let, how as a team, can we, can we fix this or move forward? Or how do we transition this to our favor? Like maybe this is better. Like maybe it needed to happen this way. Like maybe we needed to take that window out or we needed to do something that, that works as a team. And that's the best environment where everybody learns. And when the architect is involved in some of the construction things that happen on construction, you don't continue to repeat bad details because you knew it didn't go well, or, or you do learn something from the contractor that turns out to be really easy way to achieve something that you can then translate into the next project. Like we're always learning. And you had said earlier about, you know, why some women get out of the field, but I also, and I don't know if this is as an architect, Christine and I touched on this a little bit, or if it's as a female in there, but I'm not as likely to go up on the job site as a new architect and ask the plumber why they're doing a certain thing. Cause I don't want to look like I don't know anything, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so if we can create this environment of sharing, because I had a male counterpart who said like, I always show up on the job site and I always ask about this because the plumber and the electrician are excited about their trade. You know, they, when you work with a really good one, they'll explain to you all day long why they've done something. And so changing the the idea of how we think about the construction industry i think can also help to foster new people getting into construction because we're like hey let me take you under my wing and show you how to do this and yeah uh you should be wearing the right footwear and a hard hat and all this stuff but come on to the job site and let me walk you around and let me talk about all of this or um i recorded with doug horgan who for 10 years was the, I'm going to call him the fix it guy, but he, he basically went and dealt with, you know, maintenance issues on projects or something. And so all he did was undo details that didn't work well, which taught them about details that didn't work well. Um, to me, I feel like that might be like a nightmare. Like I wouldn't sleep at night, like just worried about all the, like, Oh, did I do that? Right. Did I do that? Right. Did, (laughs) but, but it's, that's how you learn, you know, and I mean, you know, we don't want to say that we, we always learn the hard way. Right. Hopefully we don't. But if we share that with each other, like in your bottom lines group, you might share like, Hey, we did this. I just want to tell you it was really difficult or it, right. it didn't work well. Or, you know, we, um, Ben Bogey with Colbert building has been putting monitors in their wall systems and like, Oh, Hey, we tried this. And by the way, we got really high numbers of condensation in a wall system, or we, they told us you shouldn't do this. And we've had a monitor in it for two years and it's never been wet or, you know, sharing that stuff means we don't all have to learn it every time. Yeah. So no, I mean, I think one of the things that's unique about the bottom lines group is because there are other fora out there for kind of the building science geek stuff, <laughs> you know, whether it's green building advisor forum or something, but um, so we try and keep the bottom lines group to really focus on, on the business side of things. Uh, but business. it's not just about profit. It's about this idea of the triple bottom line. So it's people, it's the planet, and it's prosperity or profit. Um, and we're trying to look at all three of those aspects of the business. Um, but but yeah, be, because 
we could easily get down in the weeds of like, which is your favorite window? And <laughs> for sure, you like? um, we try and stay out of that and really kind of focus on the, the higher level business because that's what you can, as a small business owner, and I'm sure you see this, it's like, and so this is relates to what we do with Helm and it does, it relates to the business um, peer networks is, you know, being forced to kind of step back from the day to day and think, what am I doing here? Like, where do I want to be in five years? Where do I want my business to be in 10 years? What's it going to take to get there? Kind of that 30,000 foot view. Um, and then figure, and then kind of drill down and say, okay, well, what, what do I need to, to make happen to, to move those pieces forward? So it's like that it's strategic planning, it's business planning, it's, um, forcing yourself to, to step out of the day to day for a minute and, uh, be more strategic in what you're doing. Yeah, there's that quadrant thing, you yeah. know, too, which is like the second quadrant, which is it's important, but it's not urgent, is like the stuff that never really gets done. And I feel like business development is always in that in that quadrant. And um that it you know, people talk about like it, it's always good to make a profit. We're we're not saying that you shouldn't make money. In fact, as a business owner, it's really your duty to make money to make sure that you can pay the employees that you have and to grow your business and to be a business, not a job for yourself. So profit is really important, but but people on the planet are are equally as important in that. So like it, it's all well and good if you're creating a job and, and making money, but if you're not dealing with your people or, or keeping your people, or if you're constantly having to retrain somebody because you, you, you know, can't keep this position. And if we're not focused, um, obviously this is a green building podcast. Uh, <laughs> if we're not focused on the planet, then I mean, what, what's the point? Like we talk about operational energy in buildings, but what does it matter what the operational energy is in a hundred years if, um, there's no planet left. Right. Right. Well, and that's what, so, when, you know, Nessie's been around for I don't know, 40 something years, but, um, you know, it's a lot of people, a lot of the members are really good at um, green building, energy, you know, that's the focus. But the whole reason we started the Bottom Lines Network was, is like, well, unless these member businesses are themselves sustainable businesses and can like survive, um, then we're not going to have the impact that we want to have as an in on, on the larger industry. So we need to yeah. help build build the business skills um, kind of from the bottom up for these companies to be successful. Um, and often, you know, it does start with profitability because you need to be able to have a little bit of profit in order to sometimes do the things that you want to do, like pay living wages or offer health insurance benefits or um, do, you know, be able to send your people to a passive house training so that they can, can really um, follow up on the, you know, execute the building science and the high performance piece of what you're trying to do. Uh, so yeah. it's not to say that we're going to ignore the profitability, but um, but we want it. We try and balance that out and think about all the different aspects of the business. Yeah, and that's how you build really successful businesses. I mean, especially if you look in the tech industry, and and some of them have like a foosball table in the you know in the break room or half day Fridays so that people can go skiing, and you know they they've 
um, I had a friend that worked for Intel and every so many years they had a three month sabbatical because they realized that some of the most creative things happen when you actually give your employees a break to, to, to do that. Um, which is something that as a society, we don't tend to push, you know, we seem to be more moving, you know, first it was the 40 hour work week and then the 40 hour work week became the 60 and 80 hour work week. And the thing they don't tell you as a business owner, lots of people go into business for themselves because they have some kind of skill and they're like, I can make more money at this than I'm making working for somebody else. But they don't tell you any of the stuff about actually running a business and how many hours you end up working <laughs> as, as your own private business owner. Um, and so I, I think that's a, a great way to kind of end the podcast as that's, you know, if you had one suggestion for, for what people should, should do, um, I, I asked for like a book recommendation or a resource or, or a suggestion, you know, based on your experience, what's, you know, is it messy bottom lines? Is it, you know, hiring some kind of business coaching? firm like Helm to, you know, to help businesses kind of transition from the whole sole proprietor wearing all the hats to, you know, to a more sustainable business. Yeah. I mean, I, both of those are great suggestions, Emily. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think and the other one, which is maybe a little more generic, but is, is spend the time to think about your vision for the future, you know, whether you're the business owner and, and really Force you. This is the work that I know I hate to do personally. Uh, some people really get a kick out of it, but um, force yourself to think about what do I want out of this? What do I want my life to be like? What do I want the business to be like for my employees? Um, and, you know, whether it's two or five or 10 years out, yeah, set that goal because unless you know what you're shooting towards, it's really hard to create a plan and you're just kind of letting your business run you. So, um, I would put in a plug for visioning. And even if you're not the business owner, um, you know, you can have a personal vision for what you want to see in your career. What kinds of things do you want to be doing 10 years from now, whether or not um, even as an employee. So that's what I would suggest. And yeah, and I would suggest for you, if you haven't developed this, and so for all the architects that are listening to this podcast on the Entrepreneur Architect, uh, Mark LePage did put together a whole vision narrative, um, which usually crops up. I think it's a, a blog post that he did a couple of years ago um, about you know giving yourself the space and time to do that. It, it, usually it's best to do it in the fourth quarter of the year before, not like on January 1st, uh, but to, to kind of plan or start planning for, for the next year um, and make a one, it's either one, two and five year goals or one, three and five year goals um, for your business so that, you know, you're, you have actionable, you know, and start with the vision narrative of what you want all of that to be. And then you can break that down into, you know, mission and then goals and then action items, you know, and, and four quarters and a time for you to check in to see how you're, how you're doing on your goals and your action items. Um, and also a timeline for you to, to track what you're doing, because if you, if you're not doing any tracking, you find five years later that you, you, you didn't hit any of the things that you thought you wanted to do. Or, um, I think it's in a Dave Ramsey book said that if you're not, 
if you don't create a vision narrative for your company, you find out five years later that you're la- you've climbed the ladder, but your ladder is propped against the wrong building yeah. or something like that, which I always thought was like, oh yeah. Um, and they, they talk about how if you, if you haven't created a vision for yourself, you don't have the opportunity to weigh a no against a yes for taking on a project that, that might support the mission that you've kind of created for your business. And so um, I'm in full support of the vision narrative. Maybe as a creative, I like doing that stuff. Um, I set some really lofty four quarter goals this year that um, I'm on, on target to have done something with them um, mm-hmm. and now I have to kind of track yeah. how those will transition and, and, and some of them have actually uh, manifested in totally different ways. So be careful what you ask for <laughs> when right. you do your vision narrative and you put out into the universe what you think you want to, to see happen um, with your business because it can be a pretty exciting roller coaster. But it does give you the ability to, to weigh a yes or no um, on your business and it was really scary. People say like, Oh, how did you decide to go out on your own? And it was really scary until I did it. And then I'm like, Oh, okay, this is okay. And then they're like, well, how did you stop doing, you know, other things? And I'm like, I just started saying, this is what I, I am doing. And I started saying no to projects that didn't, didn't follow along with those goals. And that actually gave me the time to a market or pay attention to, uh, what I was doing, but it also gave me the space in my schedule. Cause if you don't say no to anything, then you end up being too busy to take on that great project when it does show up. And so, um, it's a, it's a hard business lesson to learn to say no, I think, yep. because yep. especially when you have employees, you're always concerned about making enough money to continue to pay your employees, which is why someone like yourself in a business consulting that can help you set up. Because I think as a, sole proprietor, what most people do is just not pay themselves when there's not enough money, which um, tends to be really difficult on your your own personal life. So the job that you create for yourself can't be at the expense of your own family or your own whatever you've got going on. So, um, so having some of those business techniques in place is, is really critical. So I appreciate you coming on today, sharing a little bit more about what you do and how you got there. Um, and I'm obviously a big supporter of, you know, women in construction trades and, um, you know, really just any, anyone getting into any field because there's really no barrier to entry other than your own ability that you can't do it. So, um, thank you for coming on and I will make sure that there are, uh, notes in the uh, show notes about how people can get in contact with you um, for sure uh, if they're interested in just connecting with you or or following you on any of your social media channels or uh, you know getting in touch with you about helping them grow their businesses with Helm so thank you thanks a lot Emily this has been fun Thanks for tuning in to the E3 podcast. I hope you guys have been enjoying these episodes as much as I have. I've had some really interesting guests, a lot of great professionals in the building science and architecture and building realm. So thank you to all the guests that have been on. If you're enjoying the podcast, like and share on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or leave me a comment on the website. And if there's somebody you'd like to hear from or you'd like me to have on the podcast, send me an email, emily at matramarch.com. 
Otherwise, have a fantastic weekend and we'll see you again next week.